course, we're in chapter 7 now, and this week we're going to finish up verse 6. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 4, and I'm going to pick up with those again because i got a couple more things I want to say, and then we'll finish up in verses 5 and 6. And just by way of reminder before I read these verses, you'll recall that the way this letter is broken up is that in the first five chapters, we're dealing with the doctrine of justification. And that is really just simply this, how can a person be right with God? And Paul makes it clear that it's not through any works of the law or any goodness in themselves, but it is only through faith in Jesus. And when a person turns to the Lord and trusts in the Lord, God declares them righteous, which means the good news of that is this, that they are forgiven of all their sins and they are given eternal life. It is as though they had done right their whole life and never did wrong, all because of what Jesus does and did and not what they did. He lived perfectly for them. He died on the cross, paying all the penalty for the sin. Then He rose again the third day to show that. It's God's way of showing His life and death were accepted and the fulfillment of the law. And now anyone can turn to Him in faith and find and be justified by God, regardless of their works. That's in chapters 1 through 5, but in chapters 6 through 8, and it goes really hand in hand with the, that first part, is the, what we call the teaching about sanctification. That's just a fancy word for the word holiness. That is what we find is that those who are justified by God through faith in Jesus are to be living lives that are pleasing to God and not to gain His favor, but because they have it. They are to be living lives that are in accordance with what He would want them to do. That's holiness. And what we also find to be painfully true as Christians is that this, whereas that first part, justification, remember, was a one-time thing, happened in a moment, there's no progress in justification, we're not making ourselves more righteous to be declared righteous by God, but this idea of sanctification This is a little different, painfully so. This is why if you know many Christians, and let's say you're not one, but you know Christians, you will notice that at times they do what's right and you would be willing to acknowledge that. But at times they do what's wrong and you're going to notice that as well. You need to know that when they do what is wrong... It doesn't mean they are hypocrites. What it means is that they are in this process of becoming what they're supposed to be, and that is holy. They're in the process of becoming like Jesus. They haven't been made fully like Jesus yet. As a matter of fact, that won't happen until what we call glorification, that's further on in Romans 8, where we are raised from the dead and we are conformed fully and finally to the image of Jesus. When that happens, then we will never sin again. Romans 7 helps us with that, and when we get down into verses 
13 through the end of the chapter. I'm hoping that'll be very encouraging to you as it is to me to recount Paul's experience in this and to realize that we are not glorified yet. But this is about sanctification. And then chapter 7 is about sanctification in the law. What law? What role does the law play? The Mosaic law, the Old Testament law in the believer's life. So let's read those verses once again, Romans 1 through 6, and then I'll just I'll pause and I'll pray and I'll ask God by His Spirit to help us understand this passage. And then I'll jump in with some points that come out of these verses, okay? Romans 7 verse 1, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies... She is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code or of the letter. Let's just pause now and ask God's blessing on this passage. Father, I confess to you that apart from the Spirit and His help in me right now, I can do nothing of value in these next few minutes. We need your Spirit's help to understand these verses, to properly apply them, to believe them. And so I'm asking for that. I'm asking for the gifting of the Spirit now for teaching, for exhortation, for preaching. And I pray that I would not be in the way in any way of Your Word here and of Your truth, but that Your Spirit would just carry me and these words to Your people so that they can be built up and edified in Jesus Christ. And I ask this in His name. Amen. Now remember in this discussion that is about the law, as a matter of fact, the word law is used in these 25 verses over 20 times. It means it is a primary feature of this chapter, what he's talking about. And again, I always I like to point out the headings even that our translators have put here for our help. Over verse 1 in chapter 7, released from the law. And then down in verse 7, the law in sin. We're dealing with the law now. We're, Paul's honing in on this. And I referred to it last week, but back in chapter 6 and verse 14, he said, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. But he didn't explain what he meant by you are not under the law. And why it is that sin will not have dominion over you now that you're under grace, but it did have dominion while you were under law and would have dominion over you if you were still under law. He didn't explain what he meant by that. 
That's what chapter 7 is about, and specifically the first 12 verses, you see. He's returning to verse, chapter 6, verse 14, and he's now going to elaborate on what he meant because many of these things would catch the attention of the reader. Like, what do you mean I'm not under law, Paul? What's wrong with the law? Why would I be dominated by sin in my life if I were under the law? What are, what are we talking about with that? That's what he's explaining in these verses, especially the first 12 of them. And what we're going to see, friends, is so important. I mentioned it this week, last week. I'm going to say this again. The law cannot justify you, and the law cannot sanctify you. The law is good, and it's righteous, and it's holy, but it is powerless now to save you. As a matter of fact, what Paul is teaching in these verses, and as we go on, we'll see it more clearly, far from saving you, friends, the law actually condemns you. Far from giving you the eternal life you want, it actually produces death. That's the problem. The law is righteous and good and holy, but we are not. And when you mix the law with sinful people who do not have the Spirit of God in them, there is nothing but problems. There's nothing but condemnation and death. See, a lot of people, a lot of the Jews Paul was dealing with, they heard this law and they thought, this is what I got to do. I've got to obey this law, and if I can just obey it enough, I'll be justified. If I can keep obeying it enough, I'm going to be sanctified. I'm going to be accepted into the presence of God. I'm going to be accepted into His kingdom because I'm keeping the law. What Paul has to show is how deadly that way of thinking is. And there are there are churches and denominations under that bigger heading Christianity. The friends, they teach the same kinds of things. That the law, capital L, or law, lowercase l, and rules are the path to life. And so many people have started to view Christianity as just things that you either do or don't do. That's what Christianity, that's the essence of it. It's a bunch of rules that are given to people that they're supposed to obey and they think if they obey it enough, then they're going to heaven. Friends, that, that is not the gospel. That is not Christianity. And Paul has to show you, he has to get very dramatic in this to show you that you are now not under law, you're released from law. As a matter of fact, you've died to the law. He will say in chapter 10 that Christ now is the end of the law for righteousness. He's not throwing out the law. He'll uphold the law. But when it comes to getting right with God and staying right with God, the law is not the means. And so what did he do in these first four verses? Remember that? He gave an illustration. 
about a married... That, first of all, he made that statement, right, in verse 1, that you guys know the law, right? He's saying, you all know the law, brothers. That a person is under the law. It's binding on a person as long as he lives. They're bound to live by it. Like a woman married to a man and under law is bound to her husband for life. But, he says, if her husband dies, she's released from the law. And he applies that in verse 4. Remember, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Now, let me park on that again for a moment. You need to see this and how dramatic this is. You have died to the law. You are under no more, you're no more under legal obligation to adherence to the Old Testament law. That's what he's saying. That's powerful language. We don't, maybe we don't understand that, but believe me, when Paul would say these kinds of things, his fellow Jews would get very angry with him. You have died law for this purpose. Remember it in verse 4? And wait, you died to the law through the body of Christ. Clear reference to the cross, right? Where on the cross, Jesus was dying for our law-breaking and our inability to keep the law, thereby fulfilling the law's demands of death. See, the law demands death for lawbreakers, which we all are. And the only one who was not a lawbreaker was the one born under the law, Jesus, who obeyed the law, didn't deserve death, but went to the cross and died and paid the penalty and became the curse of the law for us, became sin for us, you see. We now have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You don't belong to the law anymore. You belong to Him who has been raised from the dead. That's clearly Jesus, right? The only one that we know of that Paul has been talking about that has been raised from the dead is Jesus. So stay with the analogy here. You were married to the law and obligated to it, to all of its righteous demands. Problem is, you're a sinner, can't keep it, you're condemned. So Christ dies for that, is raised again. Now you belong to Him in a much more wonderful way than you belong to the law. You belong to Christ now. You are His in a covenantal marriage relationship. This is why the church is called the bride of Christ. This is why Paul is bringing out a, a marriage illustration here. Because he's saying, you're now married to Christ. The old relationship you had to the law was what we might call a toxic relationship. It was really problematic because it could not give us the life we needed and it only condemned us because it exposes how sinful we are. But now, through Christ, we're delivered from that and you're married to Christ. This is, by the way, 
once this happens and you are married to Christ, this is why the law can no longer hurt you. Not even on judgment day. This is why Paul will say in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now, brethren, no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Can't happen. Not even in the realm of possibility. It's interesting, I was listening to somebody speaking on this this week, and he brought out the point that in the Bible, we're told that all judgment is given unto the Son. Right? And you remember, those of you that have been here, and we went through Matthew, and we went through Matthew 24 and 25, and you got the judgment there, and all the nations brought before Jesus. Like, He is the final determiner. Okay? The one who's going to be sitting on that glorious throne through whom you must pass to enter into the eternal kingdom is the one you belong to now. He is your husband, and He is the one who bore your law-breaking in Himself. So there is no way that that one is going to condemn those that belong to Him. You see it? You belong to Him now. Friends, did you understand that this is the essence of Christianity? is a relationship with Christ, a covenant-bound, eternal, committed relationship, not with a dead Messiah who said some nice things, but the one who's been raised from the dead. Do you see that? It's this vital relationship with Him. How often we can miss that. You can't have true Christianity and have it be rules-based or law-based. If it's founded upon the law, it's a problem. It's got to be relationally focused now to the one to whom you belong. You see how that must be the focus then of your life? He must be the focus of your life. It isn't, you're not focused on the law. It's not that you're not reading the law. It's not that you don't delight in the law. It's not that you don't enjoy it. But it's that the focus now is upon Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. It's interesting how you can grow up in Christianity, literally go to church week upon week, and somehow because of that spiritual blinding we all have, you can completely miss this. I did. Like you completely miss the whole point of all of this is to be bound in this relationship to Jesus Christ. It isn't about what you do or don't do. Those things eventually play a role, and we got to decide what we're going to do and don't do. But it's all about Jesus Christ, you see. It's about Him now. The focus is on Him. When you are trying to share your faith with someone, always redirect it back to Jesus, who He is, what He did, what that means, what their response should be to Him. See, evangelism is proclaiming the good news about whom? About Jesus. Paul entered the letter. I've been set apart for the gospel, says Paul. The gospel of God concerning His Son. That's what I do. I preach Christ and I preach Him crucified. 
When you're working with people and their lives are in a bad way, don't start with what they should start doing or not stop doing or whatever it is or start attending church or, hey, why don't you start reading your Bible? Why don't you start praying? Talk to them about Jesus, you see, because none of those other things can save them. Well, Paul's point is the law can't save, no other rules can save, nothing else can save. The one who saves is Jesus. He saves you, you see. We look to Christ, we proclaim Christ, we become Christ-centered. And when we are living out our lives now and we are finding that there is faulty, uh, 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 failing at times and we're dealing with sins and with struggles, the answer, friends, isn't more rules. The answer is more Christ, more relationship. i got to look to Him now. i got to cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is the one who has been raised from the dead. He is the one to whom you are united. And whether you realize it or not in this room, brothers and sisters, that is incredibly wonderful news. You'll remember the purpose of this relationship. Verse 4. You have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For, verse 5, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. See, when you are in the law, all that does is bear fruit for death. You may think you have this external, you know, religiosity that you've got going on, this external morality and you do all the right things, and you don't do the wrong things. All that's bearing fruit for is death, you see. The only way to bear fruit for God is be united to Jesus Christ through faith. That's what he's teaching. You can give your life, as Paul had, to a, I mean, heartfelt, daily devotion to law-keeping. He did that as a Pharisee. He gave himself to keeping the law, and he would say now all that did was bear fruit unto death. It produced nothing in me until I was united to Christ by faith. Now my life can bear fruit for God. And God, this union to Christ is this fruit-bearing, and I think in the context of Romans 7, the primary thing this is, is the, the fruit of holiness in our lives. The fruit of true holiness. As a matter of fact, Ephesians 5.25, keeping in this husband-wife illustration here, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, listen, that he might sanctify her. Do you know, friends, when Jesus went to the cross for you, a member of his bride, he did that so that he could sanctify you. And what is sanctify? Make you holy. It's the whole purpose. If we're pursuing holiness, it isn't going to be based on laws and rules. It's going to be from Jesus Christ himself. Christianity is relationally centered. A life-giving, real relationship, not with a set of laws or rules on a piece of paper 
or carved in stone, but a living, life-giving, fruit-bearing, holiness-producing relationship to the risen Jesus Christ. Like we looked at last week, John 15, verses 4 to 5, he says, Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. Guys, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, he was saying the same thing. Paul's elaborating now on this principle. So one of the keys then to bearing fruit as a Christian is learning what it means to abide in Jesus, right? It cannot mean anything less than this. Keep focused on Him by faith. Not on the law. Not on rules. Not on your own sins even. Not on your own failures. Not on your own shortcomings. Not on who you think you should be, but you're not. You focus yourself now. The focus of your faith is Jesus. Didn't we just read earlier from Hebrews 12? Who are we looking to? Jesus. The author and the finisher of our faith, you see. It's all about Christ. Abiding in Him each and every day. You know, I thought about this example this week. If you come to Calvary, you know that we really promote... Bible reading, right? Everybody that's been here a long time, you know I promote it all the time. I think they're, based on Psalm 1, you know, there is a direct correlation between a person's relationship with their Bible and bearing fruit. But here's the problem with when I say that, and I want to make this really clear. Some people are, they hear me say that, and instinctually they know I should be reading my Bible. I ought to be reading my Bible. And they're right. It'd be good for me, I think, to be reading my Bible. So they have times in which they will start reading their Bibles. And you know what happens? Not much of anything at all. Not a lot of fruit. And I think one of the problems is because of who we are as people, and we're hardwired to be rules-based, legalistic people, is that we see what we ought to do, and we set out to do it from the perspective of rules. So my rule would be, i got to get up tomorrow, i got to read my Bible. So I'm going to open my Bible, and I'm going to read my Bible, and I might see some things in there, and that's interesting, and that, and you shut your Bible, and you're like, okay, I obeyed the rule. Not a lot of fruit came from that. So what I want to say is this, in keeping with what we're talking about here, why don't you do a little shift in your thinking? We should all do this. You get before your Bible, friends, whose words are these? These are God's words, which means it is God speaking to us. When you approach that daily Bible reading, Approach it not from a rules perspective, but relationally. I'm about to, you say this to yourself, I'm about to talk to God now, and He's about to talk to me. 
you're having fellowship with God in those moments. You know, you got to be like David. Psalm 119, he said, he says, uh, open my eyes. Now he's praying here to the Lord. And he's got parts of Torah laid out in front of him. The law. And he says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. You see the difference there? He's not sitting down. Okay, I must read Torah now. I will read here and I'm going to read this. No fruit in that. But in relationship, there's fruit. With a living being, there can be fruit. Because in those moments now, He is opening your eyes. You're seeing things. You're experiencing that. You're praying it back to Him. There's actual communication happening here. And friends, I think, really, I think that kind of Bible reading will produce fruit. It's relationally based. Don't worry then. If some of you struggle with Bible reading, don't worry about how much you're going to read in one day. Do away now with, I'm going to do a whole chapter, I'm going to do two chapters from this part and this part. I encourage that. But if you're struggling, I want you to forget about that right now because that becomes a rule. Now you have to pick somewhere in your Bible to read. So you could say, I'm going to read through Ephesians. But in this method, you may not get very far. You ask the Lord in a relational way, open this up to me. You might get to verse 10, and He's showing you these things. He's actually answering that prayer. Next thing you know, you're in communion with God. You don't want to just breeze by that so that you can check off the rule that you went to the next chapter, right? Shift the way you think in your Bible reading so that it becomes relational because that's what all of Christianity is about. It's a relationship with the triune God through His risen Son, Jesus Christ. And every person in this world, whether they realize it or not, are aching for that relationship. This is why people are hurting. This is why the world is becoming darker and darker. This is why people are miserable. They lack the relationship they were created for. They were created to know God from the very beginning. They were created to know Him. It was the fall into sin that shattered, friends, listen to me, the relationship now. They all need this. Everybody needs this. Everybody in the room needs a relationship with the triune God through faith in His risen Son, Jesus Christ. This is why you may not share it with others, but I know by personal experience that you have a void in your heart. There is an emptiness there. This is why some of the most famous people in our nation pursue with every ounce of being they have fame and fortune, and they get to it, and they achieve it, and everybody knows their name and screams their name when they're on the stage and pay money to go see their movies or whatever it is, and they will confess to you, I'm miserable. They were created to have a relationship with the triune God through faith in His risen Son, Jesus Christ. 
They were created to have the presence of the Spirit within them and be able to fellowship with this God all of their lives and live with Him in joy and peace and love. The problem is sin and the devil and the blindness he brings. We didn't read into 2 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. We only read through 2 Corinthians 3. And 2 Corinthians 4 talks about the fact that the devil, the God of this age, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the gospel. Some of you have come, many of you, most of you have come to faith in Christ and you see the glory of Jesus in the gospel. You see it. And maybe you can't understand why you can see this and others can't, you see. Friends, it's because the devil's blinded their minds and hearts. They can't see it like you can see it. This is why we share the gospel and we pray. Every day I have people and I say to God about these people that I care about, I say, God, Cause them to be born again. God, show grace to them. God, command light to shine in darkness. God, let them see Jesus. See, it's not something I can do. It's not even something they can do for themselves. They need God to do this. This morning when we were in the office and a few of us get together and pray for the service, I want you to know, everybody in here to know, that it was prayed that for those of you who do not know Jesus Christ in a saving way, that you would know Him today. I pray it in my morning pastoral prayer almost every week that God would do this work and that they'd see Jesus Christ and be born again. Friends, your faith life is not a set of rules. It is not a set of do's and don'ts. Friends, your faith life is a covenantal marriage relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I want you to walk out this week and I want you to focus on Jesus. Are we singing Turn Your Eyes on Jesus today? I thought I heard it. See? See how the Lord did that? I didn't plan that. Are you discouraged? Turn your eyes on Jesus. Are you feeling convicted? Turn your eyes on Jesus. Are you fearful? Turn your eyes on Jesus. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. We're going to end it there even though I didn't even get to my message this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. To say we needed him is a drastic understatement. You have provided for us everything we need to be saved in your wonderful son. Praise you for that. May every mind and heart now be directed to him. May he be glorified in our lives, take supremacy over all things. May He rule supreme in our hearts. May we, in response to His glory and grace, amend ways of our lives where we have not followed Him as we ought. 
And we thank you for this freedom from the law so that there is no condemnation to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.